Spooky, Scary, Skeptical contains explicit content and topics that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone! I'm Emily. I'm Libby. And I'm Ken. And this is Spooky, Scary, Skeptical. So we need to talk about, this is being recorded several weeks in advance, but we need to talk about something that's happening this week. You all have all heard about this, I'm sure by now, but Gypsy Rose oh yeah, made it out, or is out of prison. Yeah, that's Who's wild. Insane. Thank you for asking, Rose? Ken. I knew he didn't know. We are going to cover it on the pod at some point. It's She's on my list, but I'm going to give you a very short synopsis. So, Ken, I'm going to give... Me and Emily are going to give you the too-long-didn't-read version because we both have a lot of information on this case. First, should we ask, do you know what Munchausen by proxy is? I know what proxy means. Okay. okay. Do you know what Munchausen's is? No. Okay. Munchausen's is when, like, you go to the doctor and you always think something's wrong and you continue to go in and saying something's wrong, basically. Okay. So, like, people with Munchausen's go to, like, especially, like, go to multiple doctors and hospitals. Munchausen's by proxy is when you do it to someone else. So, like, if I was, like, Ken's ill again, and I kept taking mm. you to the hospital and maybe I'm poisoning you or slowly making you sick or something mm. like that so that you always... What does that sound like? <laughs> you really need to take Tylenol. You should take Tylenol for that. <laughs> that's because you sit and suffer. Um, mm. That's not weird. Emily and I do the same thing. Yeah, I didn't say you didn't. Oh, okay. So it's both of us. <laughs> Ouch. Um, okay, so suffer and whatever. Um, as someone who's suffering currently with an illness... I wish I, I Tylenol is wonderful. Okay. Also, I've told you to gargle with salt water like I know I four kept, times. I keep meaning to. I know it's because I was like eating something or drinking something, and then well, shouldn't she just stuff onions down her throat? God, he's so sassy. He could <laughs> or she good? I should stick him on my on my feet. Anyway, <gasps> you should tonight. It'll help. It'll help with. Watch, I'm already getting better, and Emily's like, I solved it with the onion. <laughs> If it'll help me sleep, onions will go on my feet. How's that? So, um, <laughs> can I need no, you to chloroform? No, thank you. Not on my new, not on my new sheets. You don't want this either. I don't want onions in the bed. Well, no. Now I have to chloroform both of you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gypsy Rose uh, was probably the most famous case of Munchausen's by proxy, and it was basically her mother her whole life has been making her sick, bringing her to hospital after hospital after hospital, basically putting her on drugs and stuff, and the drugs would always bring up symptoms of other so issues. The, so Gypsy's mother mm -hmm. would drug her and bring her... Okay. Bring Gyps... Put drug Gypsy, yeah. Yes. yeah. Her mom's well, name is Dee Dee. Dee Dee, yeah. Dee Dee. Oh, sweet Dee Dee. Basically... That's what you think. <laughs> Gypsy Rose was in jail. She just got out, and... So she killed her mom. She... Her boyfriend killed her mom. She killed her mom. Well, yeah, she had her mom, like... They agreed to kill her mom. And so she was put in jail for 10 years. She didn't serve the full 10-year ten, ten sentence. I think she served, it's like, a what, huge, eight? Yeah, eight or six. Seven. Because okay. um, I think she was... When was she? 2016, maybe? Seven years? Yeah. I think she was I think she was convicted in 2016. We'll go over it for sure in a real... In a full episode. But this is, again, the really short version. But basically, she got out of prison after a 10-year sentence. And for, so... Killing her mom. And there's a huge debate about whether she should have gone to jail or not. Yeah. Call me crazy, but you can't kill people. Yeah. I've heard, I hear both sides of it. I truly do. Because it's a crazy case. And the sicknesses are not like, 
She has a cold this week. She has a flu this week. It's she like, has a it's the girl was in a wheelchair. She told she told people she couldn't walk. Oh wow. She had cancer. She had diabetes. She had the ear infection she, thing. She had where she always had tubes in her ears. Yep. And then she was very underdeveloped. She lied about her age. What was the what was the thing with the legs? I, I don't know. I don't remember. But yeah, she couldn't walk. She convinced everyone. She had like GoFundMe's and shit, and people like supported her about like being like such a great mom mm-hmm. with having such a diff- a child with a disability. She did make a wish. She went to Disney. Did yep. you just say that? I'm sorry. No, you did. And then um, she also they got a house built after K- Katrina mm-hmm. up in I think it was Missouri. Yeah, and it was from what's the place? Habitat for Humanity, yes. maybe. Yeah, so they got wow. a nice house. Yeah. All because she lied and mm-hmm. she'd been like, yeah, hurting her daughter. So, and like Gypsy Rose was like incredibly underdeveloped. Like she, I mean, she looks like a child yeah. even when she was way past 18. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole thing. Very interesting case, but she just got out of jail. Oh, she had week. a feeding tube too. She couldn't yeah, eat food. Couldn't eat. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Horrible. Horrific. So very interesting. Um, she That's our true crime, crime news that has been out for two weeks. When you guys hear this but <laughs> we had to discuss it at least a little bit yeah a big piece of news there's a documentary out i watched part of it oh on hbo you were telling me yes. about it yeah it's pretty good because you hear from her too and it's bad like definitely i think it's wrong that she killed her mom yeah her mom killing is wrong but also wild i'm not sad her mom's dead no yeah no fuck that and she was i mean it's hard the the, the big debate essentially ken is and like I said, I really do want to cover this case too, but the big debate essentially is, you know, killing is wrong. You should be punished for killing. A. B. She was tortured her entire life. Tortured and abused psychologically, physically, mentally, emotionally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. is it... She killed her torturer. So it's well, kind of like... she got out in seven is it, years instead of life. Right? Yeah, so. it's self-defense. Is it self-defense? That's kind of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and it, there's more to it, of course. That's a lot very more. minimum yeah. basics stuff, but it's an insane case. Insane. So she's out. Good for her. She's on TikTok, too. Big Taylor Swift fan, really? apparently. Mm-hmm. She yeah. said her first concert she wants to do is Taylor Swift. Cool. <laughs> Can't say I blame her. <laughs> Paris tour is great. This water is amazing. Okay. You can't taste anything weird in it. <laughs> yeah that would be weird right <laughs> what do they always say like if you smell in your drink it's Sin- um yeah cinnamon sorry. um almonds i thought Is oh almonds. you're right it's almonds. it's almonds yep it's yeah almonds yep i don't know what the fuck almond tastes like though so i'd probably like oh this tastes weird because <laughs> i don't people like almonds, use so I, cinnamon to maybe mask certain ones maybe I don't, I don't know if you've ever had the vanilla cake from janet's they frost with almond. Yes, you've had it. You would know frosting. the flavor. Mm. But it's not super, it's not like, um. Super strong. Oh, what's the stuff? The almond paste. It's an almond candy. Acid? Oh. No, marzipan. It's not like marzipan. Like, it's good. That's I what know. I know. I'm not an almond girl. How's everybody's New Year's goals going? Thank you for asking. Pretty good so far. Um, like I said, we're recording this the first week of January, so do with that what you will. I have been sick this week. Yeah. I lost my voice for a while. It was a whole thing. So I, there's one goal I haven't been working on just because I've been out cold, but you know, it's fine. Other than that, I'm doing okay. Awesome. And reading, I'm reading, um, 
a really interesting book I got for Christmas. It's called uh, Who Cooked the Last Supper? And it's like a women's history book. It's so fun. And I'm planning on doing a really fun episode in March for Women's History Month about some really interesting stories and tales of women in history. So inspired by that book. I 10 out of 10 recommend the read. You read me a little bit and it was... It was overwhelming. The author's so sassy about it. She's like... Yeah. She's like, and apparently they have a virginity kink, whatever that problem is. Like, and she just goes into, like, all the issues, and know, and whatnot. But it's very funny, but she's kind of cheeky about her presentation about it, I think, sometimes. Yeah. But it was good. It was well-written. Mm-hmm. You were like, it stresses me out. That's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my god. We're gonna treat people this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Ken? Yeah. Reddit is still not downloaded. Good for you. Deleted You're so it from strong. my phone. I'm so proud of you. Deleted it from my tablet. I would de- I would like to delete TikTok, but we use it for the pod. And my one of my goals is to start posting once a week for the pod. Yeah. So, so like we can't delete it. That would be crazy. <laughs> so I can't delete it. But I do spend significantly less time on it. I my I love seeing the um Emily's like can't relate. No. Um I love seeing on Sundays it's like your screen time was down 38% last week or whatever, you know. Hmm. <laughs> okay. so he's like, it does that, does it? <laughs> oh my god. How are your goals going? Um, okay. I haven't really started on too many of them. Mm-hmm. Well, I've gotten a little organized, so that's good. Good. But other goals haven't really too, done too much with yet, but cool. we'll get there. I think I have four spaces on my bingo card for January colored in, so that's fun. Nice. On um, week one? Go yeah. you. I know. All right, um, give us our Libyism so we can dive into the story and finish up part three. Okay. Wah, 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 wah. Nope. Yeah. Oh, that's a drum roll. That's a drum roll? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there it sounds like a drum roll. There's Lovely. your sound machine gun. Noise. All right, so Libby said, and I quote, If I was anyone... I would be King George, end quote. <laughs> yep. Like right. What motive? Like what? Yeah, there's more. You always just write part of the story. The important part. <laughs> if I had to act in Hamilton and had to be anyone in Hamilton, I would be King George. What a lovely... He walks... He's so sassy. He's <laughs> out here wearing a big-ass cape, not doing much. He doesn't have many lines. He has the easiest songs. <laughs> I would be King George. He's sassy. I could see it. Yeah. Who would you be? Who would I be? He is a burr guy. I am a burr guy. That's true. We once took a quiz. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, Oh, the BuzzFeed quiz or whatever. It's like, who are you? Which Hamilton character are you? Ken got Aaron Burr. You did. I remember that. I got Alexander Hamilton. If I got anyone besides Burr, I would question the authenticity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get George Washington them? I don't remember. Oh. I, really I think we all three got different ones, but I got Alexander Hamilton. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Beautiful. Yeah, you're welcome. So, yeah, that is the explanation behind that quote. All righty. All right, guys, let's hop into part three of the Axemen of New Orleans. Hey. So, as you recall, we left off with the crazy... Louis Basumer, or Louis Basumer, or Louise Basumer, or whatever the fuck you want to call him. He got off. And Harriet Lowe. Yep, and he got off after Harriet was like, oh my god, like, it was clearly him, and then she died. But, like, the biggest defense that his defense team had, and one of the reasons he was acquitted, was because of the Axemen. 
because the Axeman at the time was still committing crimes while Basumer was in prison. Yeah. So we're going to start in August on August 4th of 1918, which was about two months after the Basumer attack. Okay. So it's like kind of weird timing, right? Like it's never like two months, two months, two months. It's like six years, two weeks. Right. You know, a year. Right. Yep. And it's also like kind of like, and we'll talk about this later kind of with theories and stuff too, but there is something to be said about the fact that there are people, or there's other crimes still happening, like break-ins would happen or like, you know, other things in the neighborhood that aren't necessarily a murder, but they like kind of associate it. Like they're like, maybe there's a connection there. So this attack that we're going to talk about on August 4th, 1918, is another attack that is debated about whether it is a true Axeman attack. By who? Historians, detectives, investigators, and so on. Anna Schneider was bludgeoned in her bed on August 4th, 1918, using her bedside lamp. Her husband... Interesting. So not an axe. Mm -hmm. Or a cleaver. Mm -hmm. Or a butcher's knife. Uh Uh-huh. Her husband worked the night shift and wasn't home, and she could recall nothing of the attack. She was eight months pregnant at the time of the attack oh. and gave birth to a healthy girl, baby girl, a week later. Well, so that's the good. girl was good. It should be noted that even today, one of the leading causes of death among pregnant women is homicide. Oh. So, Really? Yep. Even today. Wow. And that's traumatizing information for you, for me, today. Woohoo! That is pretty traumatizing. Yeah. So investigators found that the wardrobe had been ransacked and its contents dumped on the floor. About $7 was missing, but the tin box of with a wad of cash hadn't been taken. So same deal. If you'll recall back in part one, there was a bunch of like a bunch of the robberies where they'd take like $3, but they like had left like 200 in the other room. Very strange. A broken lamp was found to be the weapon used to batter Mrs. Schneider. It looked like a straightforward burglary, though citizens of New Orleans were primed to believe it was connected to the previous Axemen attacks. Historians say that it does not fit the M.O. of the Axemen, however. There wasn't an axe or a cleaver used, like Ken said, and there was no missing axe or misplaced cleaver found either. This is the Axeman's brother, the Lamp Man of <laughs> New lamp, Orleans. The Lamp Man. <laughs> So then we're going to move on to August 10th, six days later, in 1918. Joseph Romano was an 80-year-old barber attacked in his bed. Mm -hmm. His skull was not shattered, but instead was cleaned through to the brain. Oh. Was cut clean through to the brain. His nieces found him, saying they saw the attacker and described him as a dark, heavy set, wearing a dark suit, and a black slouch hat. The Grafton monster. (laughs) He was 2,000 pounds. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) A bloodstained axe was found on the floor next to Romano's bed. Romano's pocketbook was missing. Joseph died Mm. two hours after the attack. So that's new, too, because everything else, nothing was ever stolen, right? Well, sometimes they'd steal, like, $2, right? Mm. It was just kind of a convenience. It was almost like, to me, it felt like all of these attacks, and again, we're going to talk about theories and stuff, were, like, afterthoughts. Like, when, like, they'd steal something, they'd be like, eh, we'll take that, too, I guess. You know, like, but I think their motive was really killing. That's just my personal opinion. You know what I've learned? They keep going for the head. I think the theory that we have as children where the blanket will protect us, I think that's pretty fucking accurate. (laughs) You're right, because the head's not under the blanket. you gotta keep yourself under the blanket. (laughs) Serial killers hate this one (laughs) trick. 
This attack differed from the other Axemen attacks as he ventured into a more heavily populated neighborhood and was able to crawl through a window rather than cutting a panel out of the door. Through the window, through the wall. Oh, we were through the window, through the wall. And the sweat chips down my balls. My balls. Uh-huh. Yeah, the skeet skeet is really what makes that song. <laughs> skeet, skeet. A 10 out of 10. <laughs> Word of this attack set off a full scale panic throughout the town, not just among Italians. Men rushed to arm themselves. Some began sleeping by day, guarding their families by night. Some banded together and shared the night watches, taking turns sleeping and standing sentinel, gripping revolvers and shotguns. I thought you were going to say they rushed to Bed Bath & Beyond to get more blankets to sleep on there. <laughs> no, they hadn't figured out that one that one trick. Shotguns? Oh! oh very clever. nice. Thanks for the sound effects, yeah. Ken. You're welcome. The night of Joseph Romano's murder, investigators discovered a burglar had attempted to break into a saloon not far away. This was kind of that same thing I was talking about with other break-ins were happening at the time. He was attempting to remove a door panel when something or someone scared him away, dropping his tools and running. Who? The burglar. Well, no, who scared the burglar? That's they think, oh, oh, I think they said that they heard some, he heard someone or maybe like a dog or something. Like he, he was startled away. Mm. Okay. But they found his tools. They saw him. They saw that, like, he was trying to remove a door panel. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then later that night, Romano was attacked. So it's interesting. Why are was you here? I'm here to steal this door panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's just really passionate about building doors. And he's like, I need the right fit. In the weeks following the Romano attacks, three more Italian grocers were robbed, though they weren't attacked with an axe. These break-ins were all over the city. For the next several months, more than a dozen stores were robbed using what was referred to as, quote, the Axeman method by removal of a panel from the rear door. Oh. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to move on to the Cordomiglia attacks. This is another really long one that we're going to jump into. <laughs> Ken, we want to let you go. You just had to say something. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the Cordomiglia attacks. This is another really long one that we're going to go deep into. On March 9th of 1919, a family in Gretna, which is a city across the river from New Orleans, was attacked. Charlie and Rose Cordomiglia, Italian grocers, as well as their baby daughter, who was like two years old, were assaulted in the axe attacks. Hazel Johnson, a young black woman, left the Cordomiglia's combination residence and grocery store screaming for help. The Cordomiglias had been murdered. Frank Giordano raced into the alley that separated his home from the Cordomiglias. A growing crowd crammed into a single small bedroom. Charles and his wife, Rosie, lay draped across the bed with their still toddler laying between them. Charlie was barely conscious. Mrs. Giordano went for a bucket of water and a cloth to bathe his bloodied face, and Frank asked him, Charlie, for Christ's sake, who done this? Who done it? It was the South. Did you say Giordano? Giordano. Oh, so not the Giordano's Pizza? No. Oh. Funny you (laughs) say that, though, because they did change their names. It might have been from Giordano to Giordano. Ah. But we'll talk Mm. about that later. And these are the neighbors, by the way. Charlie was only capable of asking Frank to go get his brother-in-law before before lapsing into unconsciousness. 
Under the circumstances, Frank figured it was better to find a doctor, as that was higher priority than finding Thank the brother. Thank you. So he ran for a physician. Meanwhile, the sheriff, the chief of police, a couple of doctors, and the charity, charity hospital ambulance were all being called. The parents survived, but the child did not. Little Mary Cordomiglia's body was left lying on the bed, and a neighbor put a blanket over it. That's terrible. A bloody axe was found in their backyard. Nothing was stolen. By the time the couple was in the hospital, it was determined that Charlie had two severe cuts that sliced through his head, fracturing his skull, and cutting into the soft tissue and the brain beneath. His brain was swollen and was oozing through a fractured skull. Meanwhile, Rosie had several gashes on her head and one on her left ear. A blow to the left side of her head left a depressed fracture pressing in on her brain. Investigators would find two axes on the premises, but only one bearing blood and with hair sticking to it. Five days after the attack, Rosie would identify her attackers and the killers of her baby girl as her two neighbors, an elderly grocer, Irolando Giordano, and his 17-year-old son, Frank. What? Presumed to be due to a business rivalry. No way. So we're going to talk about the Giordanos. The attacks of the serial killer didn't cross the authorities' minds in Gretna when it came to the Giordanos. So the Giordanos had leased a building and sold its contents to the young couple before then selling it to Charlie and Rose Cordomiglia. The Giordanos then eventually decided to take their business back, and I don't really know how they were able to take it back if they already sold it to him, but that was their plan. Orlando told a, a reporter that his wife wanted Frank to have the store so that he could have enough money to be married. Because Frank was only 17. In December of 1918, they took back the business from the, from the Cordomiglias, who were not happy about this transfer. Charlie then relocated his new business a few blocks away. All the neighbors knew about this issue between the two families and this dispute and noted that the Giordanos had been among the first to come to the scene of the crime. Suspicion only grew from there. Mm -hmm. Frank was arrested and put into the Paris jail without bail. E. Orlando was charged with murder and pleaded not guilty. It is difficult to understand how the sheriff might have convinced himself and others that the mild-mannered elderly arthritic grocer killed the toddler who called him Grandpa. Oh, my. When questioned about whether it, they were the killers, Charlie Cordomiglia simply shrugged. Even when questioned directly if Frank and Orlando were the killers, he shook his head. So throughout this investigation specifically, there is tons of leading questions. Mm-hmm. So the investigators would be like, was it Frank? Did Frank do it? Frank killed you. Or Frank hit you, didn't it? It was definitely Frank, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And he was like, he'd shake his head and shrug like he didn't know what was going on. So there's lots of leading questions in this. And again, these are the Gretna authorities, not the New Orleans authorities who knew about the accident the, attacks and, and were more familiar with his tactics. Did they not know that there was a guy running around killing someone with axes? Oh, they probably did, but they it's kind of that like tunnel vision thing mm-hmm. that they had. They were like, oh, they had a dispute. It's obviously them. Well, and the wife identified them, right? Right. And Rosie. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Oh. The court of Meglia's claim implicating the Giordanos were made in only in front of the police. Rosie's, Rosie Cordomiglia's claim, not in front of the presence of reporters or physicians. One doctor stated, or even stated, that Rosie always denied knowing who hit her. 
Mm. Medical personnel continued to insist that nothing the couple said could be relied upon yet. They were drugged up and they had head, head injuries and they had opiates for pain. So they could right. be saying anything. Yeah. And again, it was only said to the police officers and investigators. So for all we know, the investigators walked in and they were like, Rosie, it was Frank who did it, right? And she was like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, and they were like, knew it. Fucking knew it. So just perspective. Gotcha. When Rosie was well enough to leave the hospital, Sheriff Marrero, who was the sheriff um, overseeing the case in Gretna, arrested her. Arrested her? Arrested Rosie. For? He obtained a warrant for Rosie's arrest as a material witness. She was delivered to the Jefferson Parish Jail and was taken completely by surprise. By surprise. She was not allowed to see a lawyer and was separated from her family. Oh, my God. Is that legal? It was the 19... 19s. The next morning, she signed off on an affidavit swearing that Frank and Irolando Giordano were the assailants. Oh, yeah, I'd sign anything if it got me out of jail, too. Yep. Since Rosie could not read or write... No. Could not read or write English, a notary and lawyer was called in to write it for her. Wow. Meanwhile, the Giordano's retained an attorney, William H. Burns Jr., a 38-year-old graduate of Tulane University Law School. The first thing the lawyer did was demand a preliminary hearing, charging that Rosie had been jailed illegally in order to coerce her into accusing the Giordano's. So it was illegal even back then? Yes. Okay. He also wanted her mental competence evaluated. Keep in mind, not only did all this happen and she was under drugs and this and that, she just lost her two-year-old daughter to mm-hmm. an axe to an axe killer. You can't imagine what she would be going through. I can't. No one can. Hopefully no one ever will. The judge agreed, setting the preliminary hearing for May 7th. But by the afternoon of May 5th, the Jefferson Parish Grand Jury was already indicting Frank and Irolando for the murder of Mary Court of Miglia. The preliminary hearing was then canceled, and the trial was set for May 19th, ruling the indictment had made it useless and unnecessary. The Giordanos then went to trial for their lives. On May 19th, 1919, almost a year after the murders of Catherine and Joe Maggio, Frank and Orlando's trial began. The public belief was widespread that the father and son duo were guilty. Who would question a really a grieving mother, right, who watched her child die? Many jurors had made up their minds about their gu- the guilt of the defendants, and they even admitted as much prior to the trial. That, what? Isn't that like 101 for trial select- yeah. or jury selection? The U.S. at the time had had an active anti-death penalty movement in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, and it had had its effect at the time. So we were like very anti-death penalty at the time. However, the Great War with its long lists of dead, had obliterated the awe of death. The jury had no qualms sentencing the Giordanos to the gallows if they wanted to. After a long trial, Irolando was guilty without capital punishment, but Frank was to be hanged, as death was the automatic penalty for murder. So the 17-year-olds would be hanged, but the arthritic grocer was just guilty without capital punishment. So he'd be in jail, but no death. Wow. However, by February 1920, Rosie couldn't live with the guilt. 
She couldn't deal with guilt of seeing two innocent men in prison and went to the press asking them to print a retraction for her affidavit. Upon hearing the news, Frank told reporters, both of us are happy that she has told the truth. She need not be afraid to come see us. We will both welcome her and forgive her. She must have been out of her head, like she said. Oh. I know. Because, like I said, so, like, Frank and Irolando were very close with the with the family and the kid. So the little kid called Irolando Grandpa. Frank was, like, always obsessed with the kid. He'd come over and play with her and make her giggle. He was this huge guy. He was, like, six-something. And... Like, built like a lineman. Just a big guy. So... They'd eat pizzas together. It was a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) You really want them to be involved with Giordano's pizza. Yeah, for sure. Her amended account of the attack was very similar to her original story, save for the fact that she did not see the assailant's face. Unfortunately, the DA was convinced of of the Giordano's' guilt. He made it clear that if, if the Giordano's appeal for a retrial... He would charge Rosie for perjury. Oh, my goodness. The Giordanos were forced to go to trial six months later into the next criminal term for trials. So they had to wait like an entire summer. This was all despite the fact that she obviously gave this confession under duress and whatnot. Mm-hmm. When the time arrived, however, six months later, they were in the, in the public opinion quite innocent. Throughout the summer, the sheriff had even given Frank the keys to the jail and a revolver and informed him that he was now a turnkey. Frank also put his business experience to good work, good use, keeping the jailer's books. The only time Yorlando and Frank had to spend in their, their cells was when they slept. So even, like, the sheriffs, like, were like, oh, yeah, they probably are innocent. <laughs> but they had to technically be in jail, yeah. so they were like, yeah, okay, they're in jail, for sure, wink. On December 6th, Rosie Cornabiglia entered the DA's office and waited for the trial to begin. When it was announced that she was retracting her testimony, the judge dismissed the defendants. They were let off. It took a lot longer than What's-His-Face, who probably actually killed his wife. Besumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On October 27th, 1919, Esther and Mike Pepitone were the next unwitting victims of the Axemen. Esther sat up in bed, seeing the shapes of two men slipping out of the bedroom into her children's room next door. Oh, my God. She looked over to find her husband covered in blood. Oh, no. She leapt out of bed, shouting for help, while her 11-year-old, Rosie, ran for for a neighbor. Which, also, you guys will notice, there's like a thousand people with the exact same name in these stories, if you go back and listen to all three parts. That's also part of the reason we split these up, too. I'm like, everyone's named Mary, everyone's named Rosie, everyone's named Joe. Yeah. (laughs) So... So, didn't kill the kids, killed the husband, left the wife again. And there was two of them, I think. That's the big the big yeah, news. She saw two, yeah. Mike lay unconscious in his bed, and blood covered the walls up to 8 to 10 feet high. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. Like, so they were, like, swinging the ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His skull was fractured in several places, and his face was beaten into an unrecognizable mess. On the floor near the bed was an bloody 14-inch iron bar with a heavy 3-inch iron nut on the end. The intruders got in by smashing two glass panes, unlatching the window, and raising the sash. So very different MO. Nothing was stolen. Yeah, because they're saying two intruders. That's Mm -hmm. what's interesting about this one. Mike Pepitone bled to death from multiple wounds on both sides of his head, and his skull had been fractured twice on the left side and once on the right. 
Frank Mooney, the superintendent of the police at the time, decided that it wasn't the work of the Axemen, but instead an act of a vendetta between Paul D. Christina and Peter Pepitone, two people that were involved with each other. I didn't really decide to dive into it. It was basically a vendetta. Despite the repeated similarities between the Axemen of New Orleans and the Pepitone murder, Frank Mooney refused to see it. Now, this is why it's important. Esther, however, would go on to marry her late sister's husband, following him out to Los Angeles, where he became the owner of a successful grocery. So the lady whose husband just died Mm -hmm. married her late sister's husband and went to Los Angeles. An associate of her new husband, named Angelo Albano is her husband, was Mumphrey, a presumed member of the Black Hand and Mafia. Ooh. Okay. However, shortly into their marriage, Angelo didn't come home and had apparently vanished. This is all in Los Angeles. Right. Around noon on December 5th, five and a half weeks after Angelo's disappearance, Joseph Mumphrey climbed the stairs to their home, walking boldly into her house. Esther would later tell the police he issued a threat and deputies would later find an automatic pistol on his person. He told Esther her husband was dead, and when she went to the dining room to, quote, get her jewels to pay him, she returned with a revolver. She raised it, fired, and the first shot went wide before the second hit Mumphrey, as did the next one and the next one. In the end, Mumphrey died with 11 bullets in his body. Holy, holy. Is that a reload? Did she have to reload? Uh, I don't know. You said revolver? Yeah, that's what it says. Revolver does not hold 12 bullets. Well, she was pissed off. I don't think. An informant would later say that Joseph Mumphrey may well have been Esther Albano's first husband, Mike Pepitone, killer, and he had killed him with an axe, which would also explain why there were two people if it wasn't actually an X-Men murder. Like, if it was part of the mafia. Yeah. Yeah. Esther made a sympathetic defendant, and she was not only... She was found not guilty for first-degree murder because it was the good old days when women couldn't have committed crimes. You know the times. Thus, the story came, reaching New Orleans. The Axemen murders had been solved! After all, Mumphrey had been killed. Though, of course, Mumphrey was in jail during the attack on the Andalinas and was rearrested on May 18th before the Maggio killings and served three months. But the Axemen has been solved, according <laughs> to them. Oh my God. However, the blackhand blackmailer Mumphrey would forever be linked to the Axemen of New Orleans. And for the record, revolvers typically have six bullets. Mm-hmm. So she went through an entire clip. And then some. And then, and then reload. And it's not like a cartridge, know, right? Yeah. You individually put in each bullet. Oh, she was pissed. And then some. She's like, you little fucking Plenty bitch. Plenty of time to cool down on that on that reload. Well, maybe he said more than she told the police, too. She could have been like, yeah, I killed Mike, too. And she's like, fuck you. I had to move from New Orleans to L.A. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Step down. Then, on the morning of December 20th, in Alexandria, Louisiana, 200 miles northwest of New Orleans, Rosa Sparrow woke up at 1 a.m. All she could remember was that someone hit her husband with an axe and then turned to her and brought it crashing down to her head. At 4 a.m., she reawoke, drenched in blood, her baby unconscious and bleeding between them, and her husband, Joseph, dead and drenched in blood. Rosa and Joseph were Italian grocers, and their assailant came through the kitchen window. The axe was taken from the backyard and a butcher knife from the grocery. The axe struck Joseph, breaking his jaw, then slashing the grocer's throat, slicing through his carotid artery. The murderer 
abandoned the bloody axe and a railroad coupling pin, and the bloody butcher knife was left in the grocery counter. No evidence of robbery, despite the hundreds of dollars of cash in the residence, was found. The store had not been touched. Rosie could tell the police nothing of the assailant, and that evening her her child died without regaining consciousness. A month later, in DeRitter, Louisiana, 70 miles southwest of Alexandria, on January 14, 1921, neighbors discovered 38-year-old Sicilian grocer Giovanni John Orlando and his wife and two small children, eight and six, hacked, hacked with an axe. The assailant broke in, through a window, and didn't take anything. He left the axe behind. Mary Orlando and her children had been badly cut but survived. Three months later, on April 12, 1921, another incident occurred in Lake Charles, Louisiana, 50 miles south of DeRitter. Frank Scalisi and his wife, Marlena Scalisi, who ran a grocery while Frank worked in the lumber company, were attacked. Marlena was covered in blood, and her husband was lying in bed with a broken neck. The murderer had opened the dining room window and stolen an axe from the backyard of the house several blocks away. He struck Frank with one blow, killing him instantly. He raised his weapon against the sleeping Marlena and Johnny, and as he swung down, the blunt old axe fell harmlessly off the wall. Only the old wooden handle cracked against their heads. Marlena Marlena screamed, and the intruder ran off. This murder, too, remained unsolved. Around the same time, a series of robberies and axe hammer murders of shopkeepers, some Italian, took place in Birmingham, Alabama which ended in the arrest and conviction of five black suspects. So you may have noticed we moved further and further away mm-hmm. from New Orleans. There's a good chance they did not catch him. So we're going to talk about the Axeman and what people think they know about him. On March 16th, 1919, the newspaper published a menacing letter from the alleged Axeman of New Orleans, postmarked from hell. It reads, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Editor of the Times, Picayune, New Orleans. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether which surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axemen. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue, except perhaps my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they never were born than for them to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think that there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that your police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know who to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but it could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished to, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. 
now, to be exact, at 12.25 o'clock, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and as it is about time that I have left your homely earth, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or the realm of fancy. The Axeman. On March 19, 1919, according to legend, the whole town played jazz and clubs stayed open all night. At least that's what the stories say. So most of the city ignored this letter. So this is probably the infamous part of this. People are like, jazz, jazz music, the Axeman of New Orleans. I think one of you may have said it at part one. Some were genuinely frightened, uh, mostly the poor and superstitious. But for the most part, people are like, yeah, okay. Uh, the reason March 19th is significant is that it is St. Joseph's Day. The timing would have held special significance for the Italian community. It is an important holy day in New Orleans, in the New Orleans Italian population. A day of feast, kind of like Thanksgiving, um, and charity, and a welcome respite from the fasting and penance of Lent. Most experts in the case don't think this act, the Axeman actually wrote this letter. It is too well written and sophisticated. It also echoed the... It echoed a lot of the alleged Jack the Ripper letters that were sent in the fall of 1888 during his reign of terror in London. The Axeman was most likely lower class and exhibited frenzied, angry attacks not usual for the measured or intelligent person. Serial killers craved power and control. They needed to give them a sense of superiority. It is not unusual for psychopathic killers to target a specific group of people who represent an injustice or humiliation to the avenged. He may blame his own failures in life on his victims. So we're going to talk about the two primary theories that they had back in the day, and we're going to talk about some other theories as well. The two main theories were the mafia was responsible or the killer was a homicidal maniac at the time. A gun and a blade are both lethal, but they kill in very different ways. Many aspects of some of the killings were similar. Breaking in at the dead of night, targeting successful groceries, not to mention the similar parts of the city. Robbery was never a motive. The man was always targeted first. All attacks were made with a blade of some kind, something that would draw blood. Guns, on the other hand, are incredibly impersonal weapons. Standing over a man and bashing his head in with a hatchet or a cleaver is a far more intimate affair. A killer who chooses this kind of weapon wants more than the death of his victim. He wants the power of holding a man's life in his hands and choosing to spill his blood. So for example, Tony Schiambra, who had the gunshot that they were like, oh, it's probably him. He was his killer was something else entirely. Mm. 
Experts argue that mo- that some serial killers carefully watch the news, enjoying the coverage of their crimes, relishing their notoriety, savoring the fear that they inspire, and thrilling the f- in the frisson of outwitting the police. Fifty years before the term, quote, profiler came into use, Detective John D- D'Antonio provided an analysis of the killer at the time. Ooh, kind of like a baby, baby Spencer Reed before... Yeah, before they knew what Spencer Reed was and who he was. <laughs> Big fan. He said, quote, This is a very probably a man who we tried to get 10 years ago. He's referring to... He's obviously giving this report back in the ni- late 19-teens, uh, 1910s and into the 1920s. The murderer is likely a Jekyll and Hyde personality, like Jack the Ripper. A criminal of the dual personality type may be a respectable, law-abiding citizen when his normal self. Then, suddenly, the impulse to kill comes upon him and he must obey it. Unquote. There's also the train theory. So, like I said, around this time, there were other axe murders happening around the, around the country. So, we are going to, of course, talk about the Velisca Axe murders that happened on July 9th in 1912, as well as six who were murdered in Colorado Springs in 1911. Um, axe murdered in Colorado Springs. This was the theory that it was a person riding a train, and and while this is probably not the same person who was killing in New Orleans, it is intriguing that there is the use of railroad pins were also used in the, in the New oh, Orleans that's right. one. Eventually, a viewpoint would take shape about the killer robbery obviously wasn't a motive he was opportunistic in his robberies the crimes were the work of a madman and he was likely a sadist and maybe a a narcotics addict and a neurotics addict could be (laughs) neurotic to the bone no doubt about it what's that from didn't that's a song do you have the time oh yeah listen to me yeah neurotic to the bone no doubt about it yeah you got it thank you i was like wait 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 wait. yeah however the modern study of serial killers provides insight into what kind of person the axeman probably was according to the analysis presented in the axeman of new orleans by miriam davis which is a book that i got a huge like a lot of my sources from honestly um she was it was an incredible read and i i didn't cover everything in that story it was an incredible book. It's so a if thick book. It looks looks. Yeah, thick. if you're interested in it, I highly recommend. If you guys want more information on the Axemen, to read that book. Nice and dense too. Not a lot of filler. No, it's pretty. It's pretty um, readable. Like I don't think that. Well, it could be re- readable and dense though. Yeah, it was thick, but like I think it was comprehensible. Um, okay. Sometimes new, new nonfiction isn't, so I think that's an important distinction. And I've read books that I'm like that sucked, <laughs> you know. So I I would tell you if I didn't like it. So, according to their the analysis in that book, uh, the Axeman appeared to have been a white working-class male in his mid to late 30s and began his attacks in 1910 to 1911. It had to have been a grocer, right, that got displaced when the or, Italians came to town? Yeah. Maybe. That's an interesting theory. That or he just, I mean, he could... The way I viewed it is like it could have been something so small. Like he met one Italian grocer once that said something to him and he's like... At, and then like he'd go in and... You know how like some people are just like... They like envision and interpret one type of people. Too. Yeah, or they like interpret certain certain interactions. Like maybe they he went into the grocery the day before and he walked in and they were like, "Oh, we're out of milk," and he was like, "I'm gonna fucking kill them." They they slighted me. Well, can you blame them? Milk's <laughs> <laughs> important. We don't cry over spilled milk, but we do kill. 
Um, <laughs> just kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> That's my opinion! Um, <laughs> that he was familiar with burglary tools and had the confidence to break in armed with only an axe or a cleaver shows that he may have had a history of other petty crimes. He was likely uneducated, and the axeman was probably a laborer of some sort who could walk freely over the city without attracting any attention. He could have seemed incredibly normal, but anyone who got to know him well would see that there was something slightly off about him. His early thefts may have happened to support a morphine or cocaine habit, and he was likely carried out some of his crimes under the influence of a drug. The man seemed to be the primary target of his rage, while the women and child just happened to be there and they were collateral damage. The Axeman was a coward who could only face his victims as they slept. He hated them as a group, not as individuals, like you said, and was unlikely to know his victims personally. The crimes of the Axeman may never be solved, but he was certainly a nobody, a loser, a monster, who had no sense of self and had no control over anything, even his own life. And that is the story of the Axeman of New Orleans. So my theory is... Yes, I can't wait to hear Yes, so some grocer that got displaced when the Italians came it's to town. It's a great theory. And, and then I think it gets muddied, especially in New Orleans. They had like a purge situation going on, where you can commit a crime with an axe, and, and it, it would just would get be like pinned to the axeman. The axeman. That's a great so point. So as long as you had an alibi for one of the axeman killings, you were pretty much clear. So I think the mafia operated under that, right? The the black hand. Mm. We're like, hey, we have this boogeyman, the axe man, we can blame stuff on. So, mm. And then I think that just made solving it harder because they right. were looking or at like all these crimes. Or like with the Louis and Harriet situation, he was like, right. you know, he might have done it. But he and was that like, probably oh. publicized it more that like, hey, you can definitely get away with it. Yeah, now. absolutely. Just use an axe and make sure no one sees you directly. Yep. A good theory. What do you think, um? I mean, honestly, very similar in that I think if since it's being targeted against the Italian grocers, it's probably someone in the industry who felt um, wronged. Not wronged. I don't know what the word was. It's gone. Sure, we'll say wronged. Wronged by them. Yeah, those are, those are great thoughts. I mean, I definitely do think that the Axeman existed, but like you said, I think some of the crimes are attributed to him where it shouldn't be. Um, and there was likely more crimes that weren't attributed to him. Mm-hmm. Felt that they were too powerful a competitor. That's what I was oh, say. interesting. Yeah. Very good point. Actually, take it back. It was definitely a demon from hell. <laughs> the guy who, like, addressed it, he's like, yeah, er- 1225, earthly time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that letter is obviously, it, that letter and the jazz music playing is the probably the most famous lore that comes mm-hmm. out of this story. Personally, I think that the Axeman obviously existed. He was a madman. He was likely not well in the head in the aspect. Like, I don't think he fully, he thought he was justifying what he did, but there was no sense behind his justifications. Um, And I think that he probably did move on and the the Axeman continued. And, you know, he may have been, the reason we don't notice, like, why he stopped, he may have been jailed for something, like a petty crime. You know, maybe that's also why he was, he stopped for six years, you know, likely jail was the reason. Um, but going, but I do think that he continued and I think he would have continued until he was stopped. It was an interesting, interesting story. Unsolved, interesting story. Or, and he could still be alive today mm. and be a hundred and 
something <laughs> in a nursing facility. You'd have to be like 120. Yeah, like we're assuming. Yeah, well, he was supposedly 37 or 30, 36 or oh, 37. Right, that's right? right, right. That's right. So, well, what if so he like, was, you know, a quick 16? You yeah, know, it's true. He's like 103, 104. Yeah, look at no, him. So it was 19, like 10. 10. Oh. So that's 113 years plus. If he was zero at 1910. <laughs> so he's 120-ish, <laughs> give or take. Yeah, so he's likely dead, um, if we can say anything, but. Not if he's a demon from hell. There you go. Fascinating. He's just waiting. Interesting, be too, because guns were invented. And he chose to kill with an axe. Like, it wasn't like they were hard to get, you know? It wasn't Mm -hmm. like that was difficult. He chose to kill with an axe, a very aggressive weapon. And just Um, just one he'd find, too. Yeah, he he was like, it was convenient. So there's, like, another serial killer, um, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but one where, like, he's like, if the door was unlocked, I just took it as a sign that it was okay to go in. Mm. Yeah. So, like, I feel like this guy's kind of the same way. He's like, oh, you know, if I have a... Don't come to my house. <laughs> if I have an axe, it's my side that it's okay to kill these people or whatever, you know? Maybe it was the same kind of thought. Yeah, I know. I don't remember his name. Um, but yeah, he would go in and he if he tested the door and it was unlocked, he would be like, yep, that's my sign. And if it was locked, he'd be like, oh, it was a sign. I shouldn't have gone in. And if that's not a reason to lock your door, I don't know what is. <laughs> Good to know. So thank you all for sitting through Three parts of the Axemen of New Orleans. No, thank you for yes. doing all the research. Really well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I know that means a lot to you. <laughs> so yeah, we will be back next week with a Ken episode. A mysterious subject that none Very of us know mysterious. about. <laughs> what episode? Ken's <laughs> episode, because he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, oh, I understand. Yeah. Hmm. Give us give us a hint. Come on. He doesn't even know what he's doing. Oh, but in the in the meantime, if you haven't, this is not me being uh, snarky. But in the meantime, if you haven't joined our Patreon, go join our Patreon. We have tons of episodes over there. Emily and I just covered Amelia Earhart and her disappearance, so that was awesome. So you can go join and listen to that. Plus all the other episodes that we did last year. There's tons of them. There's one every week. We're coming so. up on our hundredth episode. Are we truly? Truly. Wow. Wait, no, we're not. Oh. Between the two. Between between everything we've recorded. Okay, so between Patreon and public. Yes, okay. our 100th our hundredth recording. Okay, okay, interesting. That's fun. Okay, well, um, with that being said, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, too, for sitting through two, three parts. Uh, we hope you guys keep listening and remember to be... A little spooky. A little scary. And a little skeptical. Bye! See ya! Peace. everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Our sources are linked in this episode's description. You can find us on Instagram at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast. Email us at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast at gmail.com. TikTok at Spooky Scary Skeptical Pod. And you can follow us on Patreon at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review. It means so much to us. Love a spooky girl, a scary girl, and a skeptical guy.